Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Welcome to the first ever live performance, though that word's doing a lot of work, of We Have Ways of Making You Talk. For those of you who think you've stumbled into some sort of unstructured barroom chat between two World War history nerds, I congratulate you on your powers of perception. However, this is actually a podcast um, featuring the brilliant historian, Mr. James Holland, and me, the, in, well, I'm a fisherman in the great sea of life, Al Murray. This is how it works. People ask us questions about World War II. We try and answer them. On occasions, we have been known to ramble off on outrageous tangents. I hope you'll forgive us. James. Yes, hello, and welcome to all of you at the Saturday of the Chalk Valley History Festival. Yay! So, yes, we'll be taking your questions shortly, but first we've got some observations and corrections from our regular listeners that we need to discuss and address, don't we, Al? Okay, yes, so... First of all, um, Mark Roberts writes to us, and if you like the sound of this question, give it an anticipatory ooh, right? Yeah? And I may come to one of you and say, what do you think of this? Because, you know, James and I, we don't really, we, we're not definitive. You know what you're talking about. I I'm not the, really. I mean, no. sometimes I do, and sometimes I don't. Okay, after reading Leo McKinstry's excellent Operation Sea Lion, I wondered if the war could potentially have been shorter had the Germans decided to invade England in 1940. Given their lack of prep, it seems it would have been a disaster. James, what do you think? Well, yeah, I completely agree with him. I do think it would have been a complete disaster. Um, I mean, it's, it's bonkers what they were doing. I mean, just think about the preparation for Operation Sea Lion. So to start off with, um, Hitler has got the first combined services general staff, the OKW, the Oberkommando de Wehrmacht, which is inherently a good idea. Yep. But he doesn't use it in that way. So what happens is they defeat France, everyone goes to raid the war's over back in Germany. Uh, Hitler does a triumph, I think, on the 7th of July, something like that. Yep. Goes into Berlin, you know, the swastika are out, 250,000 lying in the streets, everyone's telling him what a hero he is. He thinks, feels really great about himself. He then goes to his Alpine retreat, the Burghof, on the Obersalzberg near Berchtesgaden yep. in the Bavarian Alps. And there he hangs out till, I think, the Beirut Wagner Festival in the third week of July. Yep. And what he does, he goes, right, so what are we going to do next then? And everyone goes, well, I'm pretty confident, my Fuhrer, that the British are going to sue for peace. And he goes, OK, plan B. Um, let's hear what the Navy have got to say. And the Navy turn up and they go, well, my Fuhrer, we're, what we're thinking about is... Um, it's like being in the room with them, isn't it? Yeah, it is, because, you know, my accents are so good. This is so strong. <laughs> yeah. OK, I can try if you like. No, no, then, no, 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 there's really no need. No, OK, thank you. <laughs> Let me off that hook. Um, so anyway, so they, they, they come in and they go, well, my Fuhrer, um, what we're thinking of is a really narrow invasion, sort of a round deal at the shortest part of the channel, because we haven't really got much shipping and it will otherwise, you know, we, we can't do a big broad front um, invasion. And he goes, OK, yeah, fine. Well, go off the planet. Then the army come in and, and he says, so what's your plan? He goes, well, my Fuhrer, you know, what we're thinking of doing is on a broad front from, from Lyme Regis in, in a place called Dorset. Uh, and then we'll go all the way to Deal uh, and we'll, we'll attack there. And he goes, OK, great. Sounds good. You know, crack on. Yeah. And then the Luftwaffe come in and Goering sort of goes, I oh, don't worry, you don't need any of that. We'll, we'll just sort of destroy Britain just with the Luftwaffe itself. And someone says, yeah, but I thought the whole point of the Luftwaffe was it was there to support ground troops. Oh, well, you don't worry about that. We'll be fine. Yeah. Um, and, and it's just a total it's an absolute shower right and, and this is the normal thing of hitler getting people to put pick competing claims in as well because he yeah that's how he's that was his managing, rule yeah his management style was to like have lots of people all with the same job essentially who would then compete with each other rather than him yeah exactly that. yeah exactly that and so anyway so they go off and do their their, their respective plans and they haven't got any landing crafts no one really thought about landing crafts so they think um okay so we'll get we'll get lots of rhine river barges which is not a good thing because the Rhine river barges are needed on the Rhine to move stuff from A to B. Closing the name. Yeah. So they take them and they kind of build them up in, in, in Rotterdam and, and Dunkirk and Calais and so on. Uh, and the RF regularly go over and bomb them and make life difficult. And they haven't got enough Rhine barges with engines either. So they sort of go, oh, what are we going to do about that? Because that's a bit of a problem because you can't sail a barge. I mean, you can't sort of take horses to tow them across, yeah. across the channel. So you go, oh, I know what we'll do. We'll put one in front with an engine and they'll tow the other two. So what actually happens when you're going to land with that? Well, I mean, the, it's royal, just, it's just... the Royal Navy's going to sink it. 
it is. Isn't and, you it? know, by the time they're even, you know, by, by the end of July, that's still not ready. And even by the second, you know, only on 13th of August does Eagle Day start. And they're still some way off. You know, they, even Hitler realises they've got to destroy the RAF before they can even contemplate doing a cross-channel invasion. So, so nothing's done. By that stage, there's two and a half million people in, uni, you know, in the army, uh, including, obviously, uh, um, the Home Guard yeah. by this stage. And they're not all Captain Mannering and, and Private Pike. You know, some of them are actually quite good. Um, and and then there's the army which is sort of being reconstituted and the Canadians arriving and all the rest of it. On top of that, there's something like 18 RAF bomber division, uh, bomber, uh, bomber groups, squadrons rather, yep. which are already lined up to, to drop chemical weapons on any German invasion force. And on top of that, if that wasn't enough, they've also got the Royal Navy, which is the world's largest in the summer of 1940, all congregating in the southeast of, of England. And we've got superior intelligence. So it's just it's just... Never, so what ever you're saying work. is it would have been a disaster. I mean, we yeah. could have got there quicker, James, but it's true. But so that so that's 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 the first half of um, what was his name, uh, Mark Roberts' question. The second half of his question would have that short would that shorten the war? And I think the answer mm. to that is yes, because Hitler Hitler survived certainly until until Stalingrad, where where they switched to, to total war, and they talk about that. Hitler's surviving on victory. He's surviving on quick and cheap victories, isn't he? Yes. So Poland's seen as a quick and cheap victory. You knock Poland over, yep. then you knock France over. And, uh, of course, Germany only has that option strategically, economically, to do quick knockovers because they haven't got the deep pockets that their opponents have. And, and if he doesn't get a quick victory uh, in England, the general's may well re yeah. re remove and replace it. Because they nearly do in November 1939. Yeah. I mean, you know, the army just generally doesn't like them and he doesn't like the army. And, and yeah, as you say, I mean, the victories against France and Low Countries will only go so far. Right. OK, so there we are, Mark. Oh, yes, we agree Mark you, Roberts, Mark. we agree. Um, congratulations. We like you because you've made us give a full answer there and we agree with you. And that's the kind of <laughs> questions we like on this podcast. Um, uh, now, this is from Oscar. Um, do, do we, I mean, does, that, does everyone kind of agree with our analysis there? Do you would, I mean, any, do we think that it would have been a disaster? Or do you think that, because after all, the British army had folded pretty ignominiously in, in France. So would the guts have been there for a fight, do we think? Had the Germans landed? Yes, because it would have been yeah, here, wouldn't it? Would have been. Talking to the microphone, quite James. Quickly. They, did, they did fold quite quickly. But you have to remember that if you're out on a limb, you've got to keep back and retreat with your yeah. flanks. It's not the British that are falling back. It's the Belgians no, and a, the French. It's the bloody them. French. It's the bloody French. <laughs> uh, James, I'm looking at this map here, and the French have collapsed yeah. yet again, and our flank might be turned. We'd better bugger off through bloody Dunkirk. <laughs> there we go. Um... <laughs> Now, our next one is, uh, this is from Oscar and from someone who calls himself Simon Shedd. I'm sure that's his name. And we're going to tie these two together. He says, German special forces, which we did discuss in an earlier podcast. Yep. How about Otto Skorzeny? Right. And then uh, Simon Shedd says, loving the podcast, which is the only reason I'm reading this out. Is there any truth in the Germans dressed in Allied uniforms or using Allied aircraft during the Ardennes offensive? Or is it something from the comic books? Um, so Skorzeny did do that in the Ardennes, didn't he? Yes. He, he had people dressed in American uniforms. They went through the American lines. They and they caused caused trouble, didn't they? Yeah. The, I mean, the, fortunately for Otto Skorzeny, no one no one actually saw him because had they done so, it doesn't matter if you're wearing American kit. No one would have seen through it at all because, um, uh, uh, or rather, they would have seen through yeah, it completely yeah. because he was very very tall, had kind of Austrian dueling scars all over his faces, yeah. uh, face, and he could be an absolutely nothing but a Nazi. I mean, yeah. you know, you, you, you can. And he would not have known the password. <laughs> no, he wouldn't. Because <laughs> wasn't the password I, um, Eisenhower's dog or Roosevelt's dog or something? Yeah, and something yeah. a word that all Germans can't say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like ham and jam or something. Ham and, yeah, there something with a jam, W in it probably. But we're not going to go there. <laughs> um, so yes, they did. But actually, I am um, in in the archives in the in the United States. They, they captured a lot of these guys, yep. um, and they um, sentenced them to death. And uh, all their last letters are are in a folder. Um, and then they actually commuted the sentence, and they didn't shoot them all. Actually, they did shoot wow. some of them, but they didn't shoot all of them. Um, and um, and and actually, some of them are really really upsetting. As you would as you would expect, kind of what? nineteen year old German lads, or sort of you know, dear parents, you know, I'm got to. Tomorrow I will be Because you dead. weren't allowed to wear the, uh, the, the Geneva Convention says if you're wearing the other side's uniform, you, you can be shot, can't yeah, you? Yeah, exactly. Because they, they use that against the great escapers, don't they? It's yeah. one, of the, one of the things they say, you're not in your uniforms. And the great escapers try to say, no, these uniforms are made of, of RAF uniforms repurposed. And the 
SS don't or the Gestapo don't care. Guy yeah. Walters knows about that. He's yeah, yeah, he somewhere. does. I was just about I'm, a, I'm not, about I'm a not name an, check him. I'm but, not an expert. But these letters were really upsetting. I was reading all these letters thinking, oh my God, this is really actually quite gut wrenching. I feel actually quite sorry for these guys. Um, and then on the last page, it said, but we commuted the sentence on most of them. All right. So, you, you so they got them to write these you last letters. don't feel letters. that sorry for them then, James. Well, not by the end, no. Not by the end, okay. But, you know, I was as I was reading them. <laughs> but it is, it is, because it, it, it's in the film, the Battle of the Bulge film, which is like one of the, world's the worst, worst ever. war films ever. The only good thing about it is it's got Robert Shaw in it. Yeah, it's so egregious. And it's got. Patent tanks as tiger tanks, which is like probably, if that's the sort of thing that makes your, um, I can't use, blood, make, boil. Makes it, blood boil, that's it, or, or your something else itch, then it's patent tanks dressed up as tigers, it's awful. Right, our next question. My friend Simon, this is from Andy and Brum, whose, whose tweet starts, my friend Simon asked. <laughs> Simon can't do it himself. He can't do it himself. No, he's not on Twitter and he my, doesn't like social media. My friend Simon asked if there was any chance the US would have dropped a nuke in Germany if it had gone badly in the West. Now, of course, he doesn't mean a nuke. He means an atomic weapon because they weren't nuclear weapons. The, were the, the, the atom bombs of the Second World War, were they? Nuclear weapons come later. Yeah, a little bit later. Yeah. 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 yeah so this is still, still atomic bombs like the one they dropped on Hiroshima. This yeah. is... This is the Manhattan Project. Yeah. Uh, and actually, the Manhattan Project wasn't designed and, and conceived and put into action to destroy the Japanese. It was to destroy Nazi Germany. Yeah. So they would have used it. And it wasn't it. ready. It wasn't ready, but they would have used it. Because it wasn't ready till July. Right. 1945. But they would have used it. Yeah. Yeah. Because some people think, I don't know, we couldn't possibly have done. But but you look at the area bombing that, that was going on. I mean, Dresden is, Dresden is like, it's the equivalent damage of a... Of an, an atom bomb attack. Yeah, and I think the one on on Hamburg was. And as Hamburg well. definitely is. Yeah, I mean yeah. Hamburg. More people are killed in Hamburg, um, in that in Operation Gomorrah than were killed in the Blitz in the UK. Yes. In three. In total. In, in total. So sixty thousand killed as opposed yeah, to forty-two thousand. Yeah, in the three days in Hamburg, and it's and it's not just it's the it's bomber command and the US Air Force, and they get a firestorm started. Yep. And. Learning from the lessons of Coventry. That's right. And and one day they one day they actually miss and bomb the docks outside and say they say uh, and the bomber command tried to say well we didn't bomb it for three days straight because they did actually they missed it and tried to pass that off as um uh on purpose but no we we were we were really really tough ruthless bastards and yeah. we didn't have any qualms at all about killing vast numbers of civilians in hamburg in the city museum there's, there's a fantastic map um they have in the in the gesichter museum in hamburg where you turn the dial it's a map laid out, laid, out, laid out in front of you, like an enormous table. And you turn the dial, and it starts from Hamburg in AD 30, where, they, where they've got the original traces of settlement. And you turn the dial, and it, and, it, and it scrolls through history all the way up to today. And they have the 1937 Hamburg map, which is the, you know, the, the, the last time it had been surveyed before the war. And then the next notch is, all the, is the bombing. And... The firestorm, it, 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 you, you look at it, and the, 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 the reality of a bomber command sustained offensive, thousand bomber raid. Three and a half thousand three, over three days. Yeah, exactly. Heavy yeah, exactly. Um, it's absolutely horrifying. And, and you really, you, you know, uh, uh, Goebbels regarded that as a defeat on a parallel with yeah. Stalingrad. He, yeah. he said, We have been defeated in battle here in Hamburg. The, the Luftwaffe and the home defences have lost here and the RAF have inflicted it. And, if they, and he said, if they do this 10 more times this year, we're finished. Yeah, Albert Speer says exactly the yeah, same. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but when, like I say, when you look at that map and you turn the dial and the, and the, the, the extent of the bombing appears on the map, it's absolutely shocking. It's, it's, it's really grim. And, and obviously the Blitz is an incredibly important part of the way we look at the war. The Blitz here, but when you think of the bombing in Germany, and all right, they started it, but you look at the, you, 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 which is sort of the part of the logic. Although British strategic bombers were being ordered and spe specified, specifications were being laid down in 1937, so we were always going to bomb their cities. We were always planning to do that. It was an extension of the idea of the blockade. It was yeah, but it's also still not flash as well. It's always to, yeah. it's also to try and limit the number of people in the coalface yeah, yeah. war. Yeah. So you use machinery, you use use bombers, heavy bombers from the air, so you don't have to have guys beetling around on the ground. Yeah. And part of the kind of the whole tenet of of bomber command is that we can win the war by air power alone. Yeah. If you just give us enough heavy bombers, and actually at the end of July 1943, when Operation Gomorra um, uh, is is carried out, there's a lot of people who are going. You know what? Actually, this might, might right. work. This might yeah. just work. Yeah. But as with Coventry and as with a lot of these things, you know, there's a lot of things that go in the favour of the attackers on those particular nights. The yeah. wind is just right. They drop just the right 
space between the two waves and on, yeah. on each night. Uh, and on top of that, the fighter defence system isn't very good. Yeah. And they've introduced window. That's window. For the Windows first time. debut, isn't it? Yeah. Which we all know what window is, right? The little sort of bits of, of foil that scramble the radar. Yeah. Uh, and good. And actually, what is also interesting is it gives um, Harris, Bomber Harris of Bomber Command uh, and, and the Allies a sort of false sense of what can be achieved. And they actually do start, they, I think they get a little bit complacent. They think, God, you know, we've absolutely got these guys on the run. This is easy peasy. We can do this. You know, one final push. I'll tell you what, let's go to Berlin and really hammer Berlin. And so the Battle of Berlin starts. And Berlin's further away. It's a spread out city. It's yes. not like Hamburg, which has got big uh, warehouses. It's, not, it's, and, more, it's not as old together. as It's not Hamburg. as old. And, and, and so they spend several uh, several weeks trying to sort of land a killer blow on Berlin and fail. Yeah, and on top of that, the uh, the, the Luftwaffe completely reorganises its air defence yep. system much more efficiently. So actually, the air defence system over Germany by the end of 1943 is better than the air defence system that we have here in the UK. Yeah. Well, there we go. I think that's answered his question. Right. Um, yeah, that showed him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, we would have nuked the Germans. That's basically what it comes down to. <laughs> nothing to do I mean, with the Hamburg. Thing, well, well, no, but the thing, well, no, but the thing is, is area bombing. They got it in there, as they called it, de-housing people. They got, the, they got it in their heads that would work. If you can do that, if you can make, if you can do that with one plane, with one bomb, um, then that's, that really is the machine instead yeah. of the flesh doing the job. So, that, so it's the completely the allied line of thinking, which is you don't need to spend all these people if you can spend all this money. Yeah. One of the side products, as well as all this bombing of cities, is that they then clear out all the occupied territories, particularly yeah. the lands that they've requisitioned, and particularly properties of Jews. So what the Germans do is they say, well, we've had all our, our furniture destroyed, so we better get it from somewhere else. Yeah. So they clear out all these properties in, you know, like Paris, something like, something like 44,000 properties owned by Jews, and every single one, every single one, is completely cleaned. Uh, yeah. uh, and it's not just taking the kind of, you know, the knives and forks and, and the sofas. It is the it's helmets, a, the light bulbs. It's the lot. Yeah. The lot, and it's yeah. all trained and shipped yeah. back back to Germany. There we go, right. Okay, so Craig now asks, uh, were the barrage balloons really that effective during the war? We know what, bar we know what barrage balloons are. I mean, you, you come to Chalk Valley History Festival, of course you know what barrage balloons are. They're those balloons. <laughs> and they, they stop a barrage. The, 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 yeah, that the, the, the look like, the, you know, that the look They're like, big silver and they they look look like, like what a kid bomb. would draw if they drew a big balloon. Yeah. Look with sort of fins and they're on yeah. the end of a, a rope, yeah. basically. And they sort of twinkle in the silvery yeah, light. That's oh, right. Um, but he asks, did fighter, uh, were they really that effective during the war? Did fighters really need to get that low in order to engage a target? They seem a bit of a waste. Craig seems quite upset about this. They seem a bit of a waste. And when he says that effective, I mean, you know, what's his bar? I mean, you know, what's well, effective? I yeah, he's not really. I mean, there's, that question's way too vague. Uh, should we even engage that target, James? That's well, I think we can just give it a cursory response. Um, yeah, you know. Yeah, I well, think they were quite partly what they were for is for showing that showing you were doing something air defence-wise, because so much of so much of air defence, because after all, air defence was very weirdly organised in the run-up to the war. So local councils were, were in charge of it, and then the government kept trying to prod the local councils, and you had local councils dragging their feet because if they, if they were a Labour council, they'd be pacifist and they wouldn't want to acknowledge there was a possibility or a danger of war, so they wouldn't engage in um, uh, uh, spending. Also, they didn't want to have to spend money on. Um, air defence stuff where they could spend it on the things they wanted to spend yep. it on and you, you get this thing where different London boroughs in, particularly in London, different London boroughs are preparing at different rates for the upcoming uh, a, a blitz of, that they don't know, that they haven't quantified yet and you've also got the government, the central government thinking, well London's going to panic and we're going to need troops in London to control the population because they're all going to freak out because everyone had, everyone had really taken on Duet's ideas about area bombing and that you'd that what you do is you exert... Who is this, who is this uh, uh, Italian kind of um, theorist, air guy? Theorist, military yeah. theorist. Yeah. Who, and he, no, he, he thought what you do, if, you, if you're attacking a democracy, you attack its population, and the population will turn on the government and say, enough's enough, we don't want to fight anymore. And, of course, he's been comprehensively proved wrong. I mean, the, 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 the really interesting thing about bombing is it hardens people's attitudes rather than makes them want to throw in the towel. And uh, But anyway, so you have this... You, you have this very odd thing happening before the war where all the different because you've got the, the local government and then the and then the national government they're all exerting different pressures in different directions so barrage balloons are fine um, but on top of that, I mean, I should, I should just say that say that barrage balloons actually do go quite high. I mean, they can go up. You can have them up at kind of sort of eight thousand feet or yeah. something. I mean, they're yeah. quite high. Uh, and and don't forget, at the beginning of the war, no one's got bomb sites. So that if you want to bomb something accurately, 
you have to get in really low. That's the whole point behind a Stuka. Yeah. So it dives down, it terrifies everybody, and it gets in really low, and then it drops its bombs. But it can't do that if it's got a barrage balloon in the way. And similarly, we have them um, off on, on the beaches of Omaha and Normandy yeah. and Sword and all the rest of it, because the bombs, the, Germ the threat from the Germans is not from high level. It is from a, a marauding Junkers 88 yeah. coming in nice and low and dropping a bomb at, but from 500 feet. they get rid of the barrage balloons on the D-Day beaches, don't they? Because the Germans are able to use them as markers to sight their artillery yeah. to attack the beach the, the, the lodgement yeah so you so uh, then it's a choice so yeah which, which is the greater threat yeah which is the greater threat so a couple of weeks into overlord they they ditch the barrage balloons because because the the the, the lodgement's so small actually that the Germans are able to, to sight their artillery on the barrage balloons. I really want some for the Chalk Valley History Festival next year. I've, been, I've, I've wanted some for years. I just well, want to put them up. and have got enough just, toys here. I mean, look at this. ridiculous. I know. Well, I want more. I want more. We were, and, and uh, so if anyone knows how I can get a barrage balloon um, or something approximating a barrage balloon, uh, and quite a lot of we'll, them we'll, over we'll, the Chalk Valley History we'll, Festival, we'll, I'd love to hear that from make you. your fly past more difficult? You haven't thought this through. Oh, <laughs> oh that's a point. By the way... Well, no, because we're not going to have a fly past... Here, they come on the hills around. Okay. Well, and then they can prove the point. Okay, they can prove the point. Um, by the way, for the listener, because um, we've, we've got a wonderful audience here, I would say, um, uh, if it was my agent telling me, he'd say there are like 4,000 people here. But it, it looks to me like there's about 120, 150 people here. And we are sat between um, a Panzermark IV, um, uh, or if you're a, or um, if you've got tiger panic, it's a tiger. Yeah. Um, behind it, an M10 Achilles tank destroyer, 17-pounder um armed yep. it's a sherman chassis sort of amped yep. sort of sherman on steroids basically yeah um we have a pair of shermans to our left and um, what's the lorry james that's a jimmy that's a two and a half ton truck wonderful we've got some jeeps um and a, a a steam engine behind us and an enormous typhoon on there and, and the world's biggest typhoon at the top of the hill for yep. for those for those of you listening on the podcast right um now could you do a feature on your excellent We Have Ways podcast? This you see why we chose Sean. I like this. I like this guy. This is Sean McKenzie. Could you do a feature on your excellent We Have Ways podcast on the many thousands of men left in France after Dunkirk? Most folk think the story ended there. Well, I think most folk do think the story ended yeah. there. But, but there wasn't. There was the uh, First Armoured Division, which was, which was south of... So what happens is the Germans cut across... Uh, um, they cut across the middle of France and they cut across through the top of France, uh, of France and there is this pocket which gets reduced and reduced and reduced around Dunkirk and then, then most of the BF are in that. But there are a couple of units which are not in that northern part of the line. And one of them is the 51st Highland Division who are uh, holding a bit of the line of the Maginot Line at yep. this, at when the Germans attack on the 10th of May. And there is also the 1st Armoured Division. And... You know, Churchill's had a lot of stick, you know, the, the men Churchill left behind and all this yeah. sort of, they were abandoned and all the rest of it, well, absolutely nothing of the sort, you know, because they were, they were still, you know, France was still our ally until they surrendered and we were still out there and it was yeah. incumbent upon us to try and do our level best and we, the 51st Highland Division slotted into a, a French corps and it was under the French corps commands and they were the ones that were deciding when it fell back yeah. and they got, unfortunately, and at the 7th Panzer Division under Rommel cut in around through this French corps and the 51st Highland Division were on the coast uh, and they pulled back to St. Valerie, tried to get through to Le Havre and, and across the River Seine and they got, got isolated. Yep. Navy came along to try and rescue them. There was lots of fog, couldn't pick them up. They got, they got put in the sack. Yep. But, you know, but the thing, is, it's not, the thing is, is, not everyone could get out. My grandfather fought in, um, in a town called Harzebrook. There's, a, there's mm. a line of towns, a sort of, a sort of, uh, there was a sort of, a, a, a chain of towns ar around sort of 15 miles outside Dunkirk and the Gloucesters were on uh, the hill at Cassel yes. where there's a if you ever go on the Eurostar and you go down to Paris you look to your left about it's the hill of the grand old Duke exactly, of York exactly about 10 minutes out about 10 minutes into France you look out and you'll see this this very prominent ridge with a with a with a windmill on it and that's Cassel where the Gloucesters made their last stand and there's a plaque on the high street there and a statue to Foch and a statue to Foch that's right and then down in Harzebrook which is sort of like Leighton Buzzard or somewhere. It's like, or I don't know, an equivalent town around here. Like it, nowhere to, nowhere to get excited about. But Dorrington. But but they've they've they, <laughs> there we are one for the locals. They've they fought there. And they made a, the, the Bucks Battalion fought last down there. My grandfather was in the was uh, they'd gone up to the deal line. So they'd marched up to the deal line um, as part of the great plan to stop the Germans on the deal canal. Yep. And then they. When they knew they'd been flanked, they marched back to, to, towards Dunkirk and they got stuck at Harzebrook. 
and uh, and they were, you know, they were they were a territory territorial battalion. He was a stockbroker, and my grandfather was killed at the orphanage in the middle of the town. Um, and there was a dispute about who gave the every man for himself order, or if there was an order. And uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, that history started to sort of reveal itself because basically all the officers who'd survived since had died. So people were able to tell the truth without wrecking anyone's reputation. Um, and that, those actions were fought there. And the Germans afterwards said, well, we thought we were up against crack troops. We had no idea you were TA men and all that sort of thing. And um, I've done the battlefield tour there. In fact, Peter Caddick Adams did it with my did that tour with my father oh, right. about ten years ago. Yeah, it's great, right? And it's, it's really, it's really, really interesting. And there's the thing where the Royal Artillery they end up they end up firing over open their their, their um, field guns over open sights at, at the German tanks to hold the Germans up, and the, uh, and the sappers all drop their shovels and pickaxes and pick up their rifles and fight, and it's all pretty. It's heroic last stand stuff, but because of them, it's many, many more managed. Many, to get many away. more managed to get because you're away. holding this loose per perimeter. It's sort of like a sort of lozenge shape that's sticking yep. out into northern France from Dunkirk, and it's folding in on itself as they're moving back. So the ones furthest, furthest to the east, are folding in towards Dunkirk. Yeah. But there's this rough perimeter which is being sort of held together along this sort of river line, and there's the the, the um, canal line, isn't yep. there? And and, yep. and Cassel, as you're as you, yep. you're, you're saying. Yeah, the, yeah. The Germans tried to bypass Cassel because it's on a hill. There's yeah, no and it's, point. A, it's a great, yeah. it's a great. I mean, there's lots of great sacrificial stands. There's an amazing one that Alan Adair recounts. Yeah. So, so this is, I think, is the first Grenadier Guards, and they come back from the from, from uh, the on the D plan. They then come back to the yeah. to the Esco, which has been straightened into a sort of long canal, and they have this incredible fight on the Esco where lots of their officers killed. So Major Alan Adair is acting battalion commander, and um, they are resting up at Plug Street, the yep. old Plug Street from, from the Epe salient. Uh, and they're resting, having been given orders to go to Dunkirk. Uh, and a young uh, subaltern turns up and reporting from um, Alexander's corps headquarters. And Adair says to him, how wonderful to see the commanding officer of my battalion from 1917. <laughs> and God. he says, you know, it's exactly the same place. Oh. Uh, and the chap says, well, I'm awfully sorry, sir, but uh, we actually now need you to attack the Epe Camille um, um, <laughs> Canal. And he goes, consider it done, and off they go and probably get completely slaughtered. Um, again, I mean, you know, again, it's this amazing sacrifice that happens. I mean, it is a, it is a, it is a myth that the BEF fought quite poorly. No, the, yes, it is a myth, yes. But the, it's because the bloody French flank clips is all boy. Right, okay, we, we're going to take a short break now, but in the meantime, a quick straw poll um, from our audience of thousands here at the Chalk Valley History Festival. Um, uh, in a moment, if you think Monty was a brilliant general, shout, yeah, right? So if you think he was a brilliant general, shout, yeah. Yeah. If you think he was an overrated egotist, shout nine. Uh, yeah, the Yars have it. Excellent. Superb. <laughs> Good. Uh, we'll see you in a tick. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to part two of our live We Have Ways of Making You Talk podcast. With me, Al Murray, and James Holland, whose hat's a bit... That's a more expensive hat than this one. Yeah, this is an Akubra, actually. It's an Akubra. Wonderful. Yeah, which is the, you know, it's a Australian Yeah, yeah, but hat. it's the creme de la creme of felt World War II It's the creme de la creme of felt World War II hats. Yeah, definitely. There's the claim on that. Yeah, look at yours. I mean, I'm glad you're wearing an England cap. But well, yeah, it's more out of mourning than... Um, yeah, no, no, don't yeah, go Anyway, there. right, well, now, uh, yes, folks, it's the World War II podcast live from a field in Wiltshire. Now, we want to take questions from our wonderful audience here. Um, I will come amongst you, um, so to speak. You've got one and, over there. Uh, uh, we've got, we got uh, a question here for the gentleman here. Right, wonderful. And a, a T-shirt, a T-shirt. What's your name, sir? Bill Chorley. Bill Chorley. What's your question, Bill? My question to you both, you were talking about Harris and his uh, single-mindedness in, in the bombing campaign. What might be your opinion of his, uh, of, of Sir Richard Pierce, who un, whose uh, time in Bomber Command came to rather an unfortunate end? Oh, right. Sir Richard Pierce. Yes, he later Thank went you. on to Excellent Southeast question. Asia Command. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, Richard Pierce did come. I mean, 
Bomber Command in the first part of the war is, is, is not an edifying story. I mean, they, you know, one of the first people to fly, I think, on the 3rd of September is Guy Gibson yeah. uh, when he's in his Hampton. And they go off and uh, they go, they, they're going to attack the fleet at Wilhelmshaven. Um, they get shot at a little bit. Um, I think the weather comes, turns, uh, closes in and then they, they shoot back for yeah. again. And then for the next few months, all they do is drop leaflets. Yeah. They don't have any bombs at all. Well, because there's cabinet-level discussions about whether damaging... German private property will affect the war effort. Yes, there is that. And then and then, and all the sort of deliberations between the British and the French about what to do, you know, do you go and sort of, you know, bomb the Rhine river barges or, yeah. or, or do you go up to Sweden or, um, you know, attack their iron ore fields or, or what do you do or do you just go for it and bomb Germany? The French are like, absolutely no way you're going to bomb Germany because the last thing you want is them coming back and bombing us. Yeah. So it's not until I think the 17th of May that the first bomber command attack takes place on on actual over German soil. Um, and then they continue. But of course, the problem is that, they, that, you know, they're just not very accurate. And they haven't got very big bombers at that time in the early part of the war. And it's just not really achieving very much. Although it has to be said that, of course, Bomber Command attacks Berlin four times before the Luftwaffe attacks London. Yeah. Uh, and that is to kind of try and distract them, really, and show that they can do it and they yeah. can reach it. Um, but then there is the terrible butt report of the summer of 1941. Um, where um, uh, some investigations are done, analysis is done uh, on the actual bombing, and basically it shows that kind of you know, can't hit a thing, can't hit a thing, uh, and it is really the nadir of bomber command, and it is in the kind of sort of fallout of the butt report that Pierce gets the uh, gets Pierce, Pierce is fired. Uh, Pierce yeah. is, is fired, and 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 also Ludlow. But you have something to add, sir. I, I quite frankly, I think Pierce got rather uh, the the bad end of a stick. Because when Pierce took over from Portal, he had his various directives handed down as to what to do. And then they kept shifting the goalposts, as one might say. And so he would start with, he had some very successful raids on Willemschaven uh, in Bremen at the early part of 1941. And then, of course, he's told to go and bomb ships in Brest. And in my opinion... Pierce really had quite a rough deal at the end of the day. Certainly Churchill uh, put him in his place at the end and said, you've got to go. But uh, I think Pierce really... Well, well, I've got to say, Bill, I, I don't disagree with you at all. I mean, the, the problem is, is that Bomber Thank Command you, is just not equipped in, in the first part of the war to do what it needs to do. And... and you know, it is a harsh reality that when public opinion is turning against you, you've got to do something about it, and that is nearly always the commander. And Pierce is not the first person to be uh, to be given the the tic tac without kind of necessarily particularly deserving it. But actually, he does get you know, I mean, he, he gets elevated, and at the end, he's uh, the head of um, RAF in Southeast Asia Command, and, and goes up a couple of notches in terms of rank. Um, and you know, he he ends the war with his reputation intact. Brilliant. I'd say. Well, that's an excellent question. Thank you. So this Thank next you. question better be good. The, the gentleman here in the flip-flops, it's your decision. Um, what's your name, my friend? Mike Armstrong, loving the podcast, by the way. Oh, oh right, you can yeah. ask a question then. <laughs> um, uh, what's your question, Mike Armstrong? Popu uh, contrary to popular mythology, how effective really was SOE and the French resistance in the lead-up to D-Day? Ah, well, oh, I think this, this, is a, this is a reference to Sir Max, and I, I think, um, and his recent book where basically he said it was a complete waste of time and, and all it did was lead to the, um, the deaths of lots of Frenchmen. Um, uh, my view is that, broadly speaking, it was pretty successful. Um, and and um, certainly resistance in the lead-up to D-Day was incredibly successful. I mean, my, we got a huge amount of intelligence about, about all the kind of layout of, of, of Normandy, where enemy positions were, which was, you know, because it's not just about RAF Medmenham and taking over, you know, photo reconnaissance planes coming over it is and this is where allied intelligence really works it is uh, when you put it all together that it's really really effective it, and, and it adds up more than oh god i've got this individual some thing again do you remember the other day i couldn't get it right some of all its parts yes that's that, the one anyway yeah. that, that yeah so it's when you more put, when, than the sum of its parts that I, more got, than the, it I've adds up it, to more than the sum of its I've individual got, parts yeah there we yeah, are that's the one that's the one hang on hang on hang on no. In a book a couple of years ago by Paddy Ashdown, he, he painted a picture of uh, a lot of fiefdoms with inside the French resistance, um, a lot of collaboration with the German uh, Gestapo in, in France. So um, notwithstanding D-Day and the investment going in by the Special Operations Executive, how, what, how effective um, was the French resistance? 
Well, it, well, I think the, the the thing is, is France politically is crazy paving. Um, it, 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 certainly in the run up in the run up to even the even 1940, French politics is incredibly uh, fractured. You've got people who, you know, Vichy Vichy doesn't happen out of nowhere. Vichy is a, a counter revolutionary. Um, political movement within France, where they 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 aren't interested in um, fraternity, equality, and uh, uh, the other one, um, <laughs> liberty, liberty. That's it. Yeah, they're not interested in those things, and 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 it's a, it's a it's a, deli- a deliberate and will, willing pushback against that. There's this idea. Well, well, what happens, of course, is when you when you've got sort of fractious politics and no one can agree on anything, uh, and the kind of normal parliamentary system of democracy seems to be failing, then you get more extremes of of politics, and and it, it moves from the centre ground to the extremes of right or left, and that was exactly yeah. what was happening in France. Yeah, and also you've got you've got um, uh, France having to cope with the fact it lost so quickly to the Germans, and and is that the sign of its own moral decay and all that sort of thing? So you get you, but you've got you've got communists, you've got all sorts of different people. And, the, you know, the communists have been answering to, to Moscow anyway as part of the Comintern. So it's all very complicated. And you've got people who've come out of Spain, out of the Spanish Civil War, Basque people, all sorts of in the, in the, in the south of France, all sorts of different elements. And, well, what, who's that? Look. Oh, crikey. Yes, we have a... Luftwaffe. The Luftwaffe are here. The Luftwaffe general. Stood next to the Mark IV. Anyway, the, the, the point is, is by 1944, the French resistance is effective because they, they could see the tide had turned. And, uh, you know, they and they're just better organised. They're better organised. I mean, yeah. you know, it, t- it takes time because if you're going to resist, you've got to have hope. And when there's no hope, and at the start of the war, you've got complete clampdown on the press. You've got, it's very hard to organise yourself. You don't, you don't have mobile phones. You don't have WhatsApp groups or anything like that in which you can organise yourself. So how do you actually, you know, it, it is necessarily fractured. And it takes time to kind of organise everyone and get everyone together. And then, of course, there's got to be, you've got to feel that the tide has turned, that, 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 that laying your life on the line is worth the risk because ultimately we might be able to turn out the, the filthy Bosch and, and all the rest of it and, and overthrow Vichy, which is now proven to be failing. Um, and so it takes time to get to that position. And it also takes time for, for the Allies and, and the Free French back in Algiers or back in London to work out how they can best support it. I mean, of course, there are failures of SOE and those agents, but actually it's a real pain for the Germans having you know constantly divert so much resources to squirreling out these people uh, and actually you know i mean look at das right moving up to uh, up up to the normandy battlefront i mean they have an absolute shocker i think it's is it um, houndsworth or bull basket i can't remember one of the sas things they find out from the french resistance there's a huge whole load of um, oil wagons just in a railway siding south of limoges um the sas calling the mosquitoes from the RAF. they come over blow it all up that was the fuel that was supposed to be for das right they get really cross go in and shoot up orador uh, um, uh, and of course that's horrific and terrible and there's a huge loss of life but there is absolutely no question that those resistance activities really really slow the advance of, of Das Reich up to the front I don't think they get up there till kind of middle of July or something like that yeah. um, uh, and it's too late by then uh, and that m- massively helps uh, the allies in their, in their battle in Normandy so yeah, so, I, yeah. I, think, I yes. think Max is wrong on this one Max, you're crikey um, it's historian. He's a lovely historian I'm a big fan uh, of The his, gentleman but. here in the hat. We have a we have a, a question. Oh, uh, it's a Dax over Normandy shirt. Fantastic. Hi, Al. What's your name? Uh, Mark Roberts, but not the one who asked you your first. Another question. Mark Roberts. Yes. Um, what I was going to say is breaking the Enigma code of the Ultra and getting the, breaking the German codes gave us a major advantage in the Battle of the Atlantic. When it came to D-Day, Normandy, and especially things like Market Garden, was that decoding as important to be make the most of it that's a good question that is a good question well sometimes ultra does work against us it has to be said and one of the classic examples of that is is italy where we go into italy on the assumption from an ultra decrypt that hitler is going to retreat the german forces to the pisa rimini line which is well well north of rome so it's going to be a nice easy victory major european capital by christmas hooray all round um and then he changes his mind um, and, and actually, that does happen quite a lot of times. Mm. Um, so ultra's beguiling, though, isn't it? Because um, I, I got into a row uh, uh, on Twitter with someone about this who, uh, who said, we knew when every German general, G- German general was going to the toilet, we knew absolutely everything about them, that's why we beat them. But ultra's just a part of the, of the, of the picture, the SIGIN picture. And you've got lots of, other, lots of other intelligence, and you need to, everything needs to cross-reference. The pattern's always changing. You know, it, 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 is, it is important. I mean, Arnhem's a really good, a really good case in point. 
about the intelligence picture because there's a whole set of quite interesting and the word is myths about the, the intelligence around Ultra and the photo reconnaissance intelligence that leads to the Arnhem plan. And a lot of what you may have, a lot, a lot of what people have got as a received opinion on that is, is being picked apart at the moment. Mm. For instance, the, the famous overflights that supposedly saw the German, um, uh, the tanks in, Norman, uh, in Arnhem, those, those overflights can't be found. And the RAF logs reveal no such overflights. So it looks like the guy who pushed that story in the 50s and 60s, um, who's the intelligence officer in, in the movie, in, in, um, in uh, uh, yeah, who's called Brian Urquhart. And of course, he's confusing, confusingly called Urquhart. And you have the General Urquhart. So they change his name. Roy. In the, Roy. And they change his name in the movie. And they, they're making that sort of nervy chap going, Sir, I'm awfully, I'm awfully worried about this. These German tanks seem to be around Arnhem. Nonsense, man! Exactly, that. Yeah. And the, but those overflights don't exist. They're, they, they're not anywhere. There aren't any pictures of panzers in, in, in Arnhem. So the, the intelligence picture isn't just ultra. It's all sorts of other things. And, you know, in the end, in the end like James says, you can, look at the, you can look at the intelligence picture and make a, make a wrong decision just as much as a right one based on what you think you know. I mean, it's Donald Rumsfeld's unknown, known unknowns and unknown knowns and all that stuff. Ultra is important, but I, I've, I often think people like me think it means we knew everything, and we certainly didn't. An awful lot of it is, is you know, that thing of fighting patrols and capturing people on front lines and bringing them in and interrogating them. Because, the, 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 for instance, in, in Kursk, the Russians knew perfectly well what the Germans are up to because because they just listened to their radio traffic. They, they, didn't, they, they didn't bother, they didn't, need the, they didn't need the ultra that they were getting from, um, that they were getting from Bletchley that had been stolen from Bletchley by Shawcross. They didn't, they didn't need that stuff. Um, because the, you know, and they were capturing Germans and saying, well, when's the offensive? And they'd tell them. And there's all that going on as well, that churn of intelligence that, uh, aside, because we like ultra, because it's the computers and it's Bletchley Park and it's Alan Turing. And it's a, and it's, yeah, and it's, it's also this whole thing that it's kind of the unsung heroes as well, and yeah. that you know they weren't given proper credit until 1974 yeah. and yeah. Frank Winterbottom and all the rest of it. Yeah. But actually, I think we've gone a little bit too far the other way now. Yeah, yeah. Another question. That was a good question, though. The gen should we? Uh, uh, yeah, we'll get a T-shirt on you. Let's see. What's, what's, your, what's your name, my friend? I'll give it away. Um, my name's Dan. Um, I wanted to know. I've just finished Jeffrey Wellham's book, uh, and the the amount of hours flying time he had before he was basically thrust into battle against the Luftwaffe who were known for being hundreds and hundreds of hours, um, etc. I just wonder, is it a result of the whole uh, war effort and the, uh, the supplying of the front line and the, 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 the industry that went on behind back in England um, that made them better, that, that gave them that, that superiority? I think there's a fundamental flaw in your point in that you're assuming that the Luftwaffe are better trained than the, than the RAF, and I don't think they were. Uh, um, you know, what, what you had in, um, in, in the RAF fighter command was people who'd been flying since before the war and had quite a lot of experience. They'd flown in France and stuff, so they knew the kind of, you know, they built up their hours and all the rest of it. Exactly the same in the Luftwaffe. You had people who'd flown in Spain, who'd flown in, in Poland, but you also had plenty of new guys as well. And, and a new pilot, whether they be Luftwaffe or whether they be British, had about 150 to 170 hours. That didn't change at all in, in, in the Battle of Britain. And in actual fact, the only period where they're really, really stretched is from Eagle Day on the 13th of August to the 7th of September which is when they're kind of cutting corners a little bit on the operational training units. There's absolutely no cut or compromise at all on the main body of the training. It is just on that training on tights. When you're converting, you've got your wings, you've, you've, you've passed out, you've got your degree, effectively. You're now going for a sort of bit of polish, and that's where you learn to fly your Spitfires and Hurricanes at your OTU. Uh, and that is the only bit that is changed. Uh, and it is reduced, but from the 7th of September, uh, Keith Park introduces the uh, squadron classification scheme of putting them A, A, B and C. And what tends to happen, if you're new and a bit short of training, you go into a, ski, a C level squadron, which might be in sort of Acklington or somewhere in Northumberland, where you're not going to have an awful lot of action. Occasionally a, a lone JU-88 comes over from Stavangar and you all 
take off and, and you get a bit of action, but you can build up your hours and you can build up the hours in your log, but build up, you know, um, as on type, there's a, there's, there's three or four experienced guys in the squadron to show you the ropes. That's just hugely successful. The, the Luftwaffe had anything like that. And certainly by the end of 1943, beginning of 1944, you've got pilots, uh, um, there is not a single British, uh, a single RAF or American pilot that isn't arriving at Frontline Squadron with at least 350 hours, whereas for the Luftwaffe, that's now down to about 90 or 1. So I, I don't, I don't, you know, the, Jeff's book is is totally, utterly brilliant, and he was a really good mate of mine. I, I, I you know, I thought he was absolutely fantastic. But you've got to remember that book is was written in the 1970s, um, and it was written from the perspective of an 18-year-old flying in the Battle of Britain who knew diddly squat about what was going on. So what he's coming at is. Oh my God, we're coming up against the, the Luftwaffe. There's just me and Brian King come against 200, or there's me and 11 other guys against 300 Luftwaffe. He can't possibly see that bigger picture. I mean, it's really interesting on Battle of Britain Day, 15th September 1940, um, the biggest raid of the day uh, um, kind of focuses around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, south, southeast London. There are 300 Luftwaffe aircraft in the skies. There are 335 British fighter, pilot, fighter planes. You know, so they don't have an advantage at all. It's just that when you're one of 12, you're, you're one of 12 attacking 300, but in the whole, there's 335 of you. But someone like Jeff, aged 18, isn't going to know that. So it gives a kind of warped, distorted view. Actually, we were much better trained and equipped than, than the narrative myth would have us believe. I agree with James. <laughs> I don't really know anything about that. Right, okay. Um, what is this lad here? Oh, okay. The he's, young had lad, got, young, he's had his hand up since young the beginning. Lad, young lad here. What's your name, mate? Aidan. Hello, Aidan. Uh, what's your question for James? Well, probably James. I'll, I'll chip in. Um, who was the better general, Montgomery or Slim? Oh. 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 Wow. At what? At what? A bigger general. Well, obviously. Different theatres, different people. Horses for courses. Yeah. Um, the thing about Slim is that if you accept that war is fought on three levels, the so strategic level, big overview, operational level, how you kind of you, you organise your chain of supplies and all the rest of it, and the tactical level, the kind of the coalface of fighting, I do think Slim has a very, very complete grasp on the whole thing. If I was to criticise Monty, I would say strategically he's got the big picture. Operationally, he's 100% got the big picture. Tactically, I think you can argue that he's not necessarily the most dynamic at, at, at the time. But at the time that he's really coming to the fore, you don't really need that. I mean, I think you can say his fire plan at Alamein, you know, you could criticise that a little bit if you wanted to. Um, whereas I don't think you can really criticise Slim in the early, in the later part of the war, but in the first part of the war, when he's in in East Africa, for example, he actually makes some quite bad mistakes. But he learns. I, I'd say, it's their neck and neck. Myself, it's really, it's very, very difficult to 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 choose. Montgomery has attracted much more criticism than Slim. I don't think Slim has ever had the sort of um, acid bath treatment that that Monty's had, except in Canberra. Well, except in Canberra, in, in, uh, for, for different things in, different, in a different decade for different reasons. Yeah. But, but what he's not had is his reputation endlessly compared to other generals, um, competing generals, lots of angry American memoirs written about him and all that sort of thing. He's never had, he's never had that bad press that Montgomery attracted. Um, why that is, I don't, I don't think that's because he was a, he's a, an, un, you know, a, a, an unimpeachable general, though. I think no. it's, it's just because... That that theatre, there aren't, there is what you've got in Normandy is you've got competing, you've got competing armies, and you've got the thing that eventually the Americans become preponderant in Europe. They they have to, they're going, they always were going to, and so you've got that the politics of how you manage that the Americans and the British together, and that the Americans then, in the end, the Americans have to run the show. So in the end, they they're gonna they're gonna say some mean stuff about Monty and you've not got that happening in Burma it's just no. it's just slim on his own that, yeah know. and there is a moment in the Battle of Imphal which is you know 
has been voted by the National Army Museum as Britain's greatest ever battle. There is a moment where Slim completely misreads the Japanese intentions, um, and had it not been for the 50th Indian Parachute Brigade, as we discussed yeah. in an earlier podcast, you know, that whole thing might have really gone pear-shaped. Um, and then we might not be saying, oh, Slim, isn't he wonderful, because he'd have been sacked uh, and someone else replaced him and he'd probably been completely forgotten. There we go. So, uh, in conclusion, Monty. Right. <laughs> um, we have another question for this young, the young lad here as well. It's great. I believe the children of the future, ladies and gentlemen. And what's your name, sir? Fred. Fantastic. Old school. What, um, uh, I was going to say, what do you do for a living, Fred? But uh, it's not my matinee yet. What's your question, Frederick? Um, why didn't the Germans invade Malta? Let's try again. Why didn't the Germans invade Malta? Why didn't the Germans invade Malta? Now, the thing is, Fred... If only we had someone with us who'd written a book about Malta. <laughs> um, well. James, any idea? Why the, because they couldn't, is, is I think what it boils down to. It's too, too tough, tough a nut to crack. Well, the, 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 the moment of opportunities really is in, in the first half of 1941, not 1942, really. And uh, then it's a, it's a straight choice between kind of Crete or Malta. And Hitler goes for Crete because he's absolutely obsessed with um, securing his oil fields in Romania. And Crete is uh, perceived to be um, a place where the RAF can make a base and from which they could attack his only oil source in Ploesti in Romania. So they go for, for Crete for kind of, you know, it's still absolutely insane decision um, in May 19. Taking islands is really difficult, isn't it? Uh, taking islands is incredibly the difficult. the British are messing it up in 1944 still. You've got... You've got yeah, and the Dodecanese The Dodecanese, well, all like these terrible operations that go really badly wrong. Yeah, it's really, it's really hard. hard. You know, it's incredibly hard. And, and actually, when you go to Malta, it's a very, very difficult place to attack because it's very craggy. It hasn't got any beaches or anything. It has. It's got a couple, but, but not, not that you could really base a, uh, uh, an invasion upon. So you, you'd have to have an, inva an amphibious invasion supported by uh, an airborne force. And don't forget, there is vast numbers of anti-aircraft guns on Malta by the beginning of 1942 all of which will make any airborne invasion very, very precarious. And because they lose so many airborne forces in Malta, I mean in Crete, in May 1941, Hitler goes, right, you know what, it's just not worth the sacrifice. These are our, amongst our very best trained troops and they're getting slaughtered every time they jump out of an aircraft. Let's just not bother and use them as sort of specialist ground forces instead. Um, and the Italians are very keen on getting Malta because they completely understand in a way that the Germans don't that the uh, sea lanes across the Mediterranean are their key to um, what's going on in North Africa. Hitler doesn't really get that because he's a continentalist landlubber um, and so he, he kind of fails to completely see the strategic importance of an island like Malta. And so he, is, he holds the ace card and he says, no, I don't really fancy it. And so the Italians aren't going to do it on their own because they're just not strong enough militarily to do it. And that, it just fizzles away. There you go, Fred. Now, now we have um, something to give away, don't we? We have a we jacket, to, jacket to give away. Um, uh, I think, what was the, what, what, what was the requirement? They had it's, a, it's an M43 and they had to say something like, hashtag we have ways and we'll see you there or something. Yeah. I'll, I'll be, be there. there. I'll be there. That was it. So was it. we have a helmet... As ever, this is the puns show, so um, I'd like someone to reach into the helmet for me, so to speak. <laughs> Behave yourselves. It's a history festival. Um, uh, the, the, the lady here, would you like to pick a name out of our helmet, please? It's actually quite a, a significant helmet, because well, it's a helmet of the U.S. 1st uh, Infantry Division, the Big Red One. Okay, so we have, a, we have a winner. Thank you, madam. It's Andrew Witchley. Andrew Witchley, where are you? There, come on. Andrew Witchley. Round of applause for Andrew. Have we got the jacket? No, I, no, we, haven't I, left got, it. I haven't got it. So I'm going to have to, James, I'm gonna have to send it. it to you, but we'll send it to you. We'll, yes, we'll, yeah, we'll sign it and put it in the, the post. Team here. Yeah, the, the, here we go. Harry, we'll, and it should fit Harry you like a team. glove. There we go. Yes, it is one size fits all, fortunately. Right. Um, well, I think that, that is it from us. Yes, it is. Um, uh, thank you very much uh, for coming and listening to this Live from a Field podcast. Here at the Chalk Valley History Festival. This is James Holland, ladies and gentlemen. And this is Mr. Al Murray. Thanks for coming. See you again soon. Cheerio. Monty, definitely Monty. <laughs>